that's troubling you. It's all those boys hollering for Eula every night. And Jody chasing him with his shirt off. And your old man at 60 calling on his lady love. No one could tell the naked truth about these people better than Faulkner, in his own language, in his own frankness. With America's most popular new star, Paul Newman, as Ben Quick, he could sure stir up a town and its women. Joanne Woodward, nominated for an Academy Award as Best Actress of the Year for her performance in Three Faces of Eve. It's ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. And welcome back to Ticklish Business. I'm Kristen, as always, joined by the fantabulous Emily. Emily, New Year. I know that we technically had our episode of New Discoveries last year, which is the first episode of the year. But this is actually our first original episode where we talk about something new. So I consider this the first new episode of the year. I don't know about you. Let's move forward into 2024 and talk about a hell of a movie. (laughs) Yes, this is technically our first theme month. This episode and next episode will be part of our February theme, inspired by Emily's own podcast, which looks at all of the heinous men we just love to hate. It is not just men. It is everybody across the gender spectrum. I'd like to put that out there. (laughs) And it's not all men that you hate to love. Sometimes you talk about nice guys of classical music, but decided that we wanted to try to find some way to bridge that gap. And what better way to start than with a look at the very sultry 1958 Martin Ritt-directed film, The Long Hot Summer, starring Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. If you've ever wondered what that gif of Paul Newman in a pillow comes from that you see all over Twitter, it's this movie. To talk about this movie and Paul Newman especially, we have a Paul Newman expert. His biographer, Sean Levy. Sean, how are you? I'm fine. I'm very excited to talk about this film. It's an undervalued gem, I think. It really is. I'm very shocked that most people don't know this movie, but I'm glad that they're going to be learning about it in this specific way. But before we get to that, we just want to remind everybody that if you are not a member of our Patreon, then you should. Check out patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We do additional bonus pods, including doubled features, looking at remakes, and based on a true podcast, looking at biopics and true crime. Emily and I just did our last installment of our series, Being Elvis, looking at Sofia Coppola's Priscilla. We also give out regular care packages of movies and gifts and let you guess on an episode. It's at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Both Emily and I are authors. We both have books out. You can order them wherever you get books. And our Redbubble store has some great art, all designed by Samantha Richardson, as well as Terrence Hiltz, featuring our popular Makoko mugs. You can find that at ticklishbiz.redbubble.com. And please remember, if you are ever looking for an episode of this show, going all the way back to episode one, you can listen to our archive for free at ticklishbiz.podbean.com. Let's get into this. So, Sean, you are the author of Paul Newman, A Life, which is a fantastic book that I read during lockdown. We talk a lot about old Hollywood biographies and which ones are worth your time. And I'm not just blowing smoke because you're on the show. This one is definitely worth your time. It's one to read. I'm curious, just before we get into this movie and Paul Newman specifically, what attracted you to want to write and spend your time writing a book about Paul Newman? Oh my goodness. I've written 
books about some miserable people. I've got books about Jerry Lewis and Frank Sinatra and one that Mick Jagger features in and the Latin playboy Porfirio Rubirosa. And when you write a book, these people live in your head for years. And Paul Newman was someone who you would wish would live in your head for years. If you knew nothing about any of his movies and just sort of knew him as a cultural figure, okay, he did a lot of great movies. He had this lifelong love story with Joanne Woodward. He had auto racing, charity work, the organic food business. Now, he was just an interesting guy, politically interesting. He played a lot of heels, but he was also just gorgeous. Think of a biography as kind of a clothesline. It starts in one wall and goes to the other. The guy or gal dies. And the stuff hanging off that clothesline is what attracts me. And Newman has a lot of stuff hanging off that clothesline that I knew would be worth digging into. Well, you said before we started recording that the long, hot summer often doesn't get championed when talking about Newman's career. It's this weird little film. And honestly, it's not even considered one of the best that Martin Ritt and him worked on. I say this is somebody that loves Paris Blues a bit more than this movie. HUD is great, but if we're talking about movies you can just put on and watch and not feel scummy, Paris Blues is definitely a great one. Was it seminal to Paul Newman's career, one, and why do you think it doesn't have the cultural cachet now? It's an important role for Newman, both in terms of his career and in terms of his personal life. He's still under contract to Warner Brothers. He's still not happy with the type of roles he's getting. And he feels like he's being cast almost like an ingenue for his beauty. He's opposite a lot of actresses. He was not a box office star until the mid-60s, even though he made some really wonderful movies before the mid-60s. And this is a period where he's fighting to get meteor roles. And this was one of the first meaty roles he got. He got to play a heel based on a William Faulkner story. His co-stars Orson Welles, Joanne Woodward. It's a loaded cast. He's able to flex muscles that he hadn't been allowed to previously. It gets overlooked because it is early in his career. This is before The Hustler and HUD, Ombre, and then the very, very popular movies like Cool Hand Luke, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Sting. Those are all 12, 15 years after this. Some of his early career is neglected. As a result, you miss on some interesting performances. And of course, it's the first film where he and Joanne Woodward worked together and were just basically living like a couple, even though he was married with three children at the time. People forget about that. <laughs> they overlook that. For people that are also looking, if you have not read Sean's book, you should. But also the Ethan Hawke HBO Max documentary, The Last Movie Stars, also lays out a lot of this as well. What I love watching this movie is how it feels like this and Sweet Bird of Youth came out relatively close together, and they did not. This is 1958. Sweet Bird of Youth is 1962. But both of them have these big ensemble casts set in the South. Both have Paul Newman playing some form of manslut, more overtly in Sweet Bird of Youth than in this. They really do complement each other, even just in that short amount of time. His range as a performer, 
when we talk about they don't make movies like they used to, this is the example that I give is The Long Hot Summer, where you have this real ensemble cast where no one really overshadows each other. This is a movie that has Orson Welles, Angela Lansbury, Paul Newman, Joanne Woodward, Lee Remick, Anthony Franciosa, which nobody really cared about him except for me. Everybody has very clear-cut roles in this movie where it does truly feel like an ensemble. You get that with Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, too. That's an important third film in that equation because in some ways he plays what we would think of as the stereotypically womanly role. Nothing stereotypical in Tennessee Williams, but Brick is weak compared to Maggie the Cat and Big Daddy. And in Sweet Bird of Youth and, and Long Hot Summer, he's the strong guy. And of course... A lot of people asked me when I said we were going to talk about this movie, why aren't we doing Cat on a Hot Tin Roof? Emily, I don't know if you have a different answer. But when I think of this theme, the character of Ben Quick falls into that trope more than Brick in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, mostly because, like Sean, you said, the character spends a lot of time just moping. The subtext that was in Tennessee Williams' play could not be included in the film. That's a movie where everybody's hot, but it's not a movie that gets you worked up. It's not a movie that makes you sweat. They may be sweating because it's the summertime, but it's not really until the end when you get that really tacked on ending that was not in the original play that you get maybe anything really passing for sexiness. This movie is all that from the opening strains of the melodramatic Peyton Place-esque opening song to the end of the movie, this movie is just about S.E.X. That's fine. That's why we love the movie. But Emily, I don't know. What do you think about this versus something like Cat on a Hot Tin Roof? Colloquially, the term boy originated in African-American vernacular English as just plain a dude you don't want to know. It's just a bummer guy who's up to no good. And so even if you remove the sex from it, which we don't like doing because we like talking about the saucy nature of it now, he's up to no good. He starts out thumbing for a ride in this backwater that today I learned that Memphis is on the border of Mississippi. I don't know anything about the geography of the southern United States. Sue me. He's already an anonymous man and he's up to no good. His legacy follows him. His father's legacy follows him. So for this, he's got so much power in the anonymity of who he is as being the man traveling through. It's a really interesting power dynamic because the presence of Ben Quick neuters Mr. Varney through and through. The age, you have the upward mobility, you have the sheer beauty of Paul Newman, which even Orson Welles' character admits he's just like, you're the young stud, you're gorgeous. My daughter has to have you. And so he has all this absolute charisma, which you and I talk about quite frequently. And it's like, oh, there's something really magical happening here, especially because she can't keep her eyes off of him. His personal history as an actor relates back to a similar project. He was in the original Broadway cast of Picnic, and he was reading for the role of the bad boy but he couldn't put it over. And Josh Logan, the director, cast him as the good boy who loses the girl because he could do that when he was a young man. He had to learn how to project sexual danger and a leering eye because it just wasn't in him. He was from Shaker Heights, Ohio. His dad owned a sporting goods store. He went to Kenyon College. 
He was a good boy, a good Jewish boy. He was not the James Dean Marlon Brando that the Warner Brothers publicity department would have liked him to be at this time. It's also worth noting he was on Broadway two other times during this period. He originated the role of the good boy in Picnic. He originated the role of the leader of the home invaders in The Desperate Hours, which was played on screen by Humphrey Bogart and then later Mickey Rourke. And he originated the role of the bounder, the gigolo, in Sweet Bird of Youth. And right in there is his trajectory, where he becomes a sexually dangerous actor in, on stage in three parts. Struggled with essentially not being cast in particularly interesting roles because he was Jewish, correct? That was something that he just had issues with socially in the 1950s? I don't think it fell on him very much because to this day, people are surprised to learn that Newman is his real name and he was half Jewish. His dad's family is Jewish. His mom's family is, I can never remember, depends where the line gets drawn, but Slovenian or Slovakian. He's blue-eyed. He doesn't have what would have been considered the stereotypical ethnic look in the 50s. He looks like the all-American boy. If you look at the pictures of him as a young naval recruit, 17 years old, staring at the camera, there's no way you think, oh, here's a Jewish kid off to war. He looks like a Midwest farm boy. People thought he was trying to deracinate himself, to bleach his Jewishness out, when really it wasn't anything he was raised with. His family, his father's people were not super religious. He and his brother were not bar mitzvahed. His mom practiced Christian science. He culturally didn't really claim Judaism, although his first million-dollar paycheck was for Exodus. What I was struck by, Emily, is when you talk about what the story is about, this is also about a generation of quote-unquote boys, because you have the Varner family, which is led by Orson Welles' character, who is living in sin with another woman, who he won't marry, and then you have... Poor Tony Franciosa's character, who's the main son, who is just constantly on his wife all the time and has no purpose other than that. I want to throw out the plot before we start to lose people and have them ask what the hell this movie is about. This is the story of Ben Quick, played by Paul Newman. He goes to a small town in Mississippi, meets the Varner family, who are these old Southern money. They own everything in the town. The... Main son, Jody, played by Anthony Franciosa, is married to a beautiful woman named Eula, played by Lee Remick. They don't have any children. And then there is poor Clara, played by Joanne Woodward, who is bright and intelligent and super nuanced and doesn't really have a paramour. And her father wants her to get married very quickly. The guy she's interested in, he thinks is kind of a drip, doesn't really have the secret sauce to carry on the line of the Varner family. And so Ben Quick is enlisted to essentially seduce her. I was watching the trailer for this. I didn't really know what I expected because, again, HUD comes after this. HUD has a very different feel to it than this does. I was struck by how the movie is hyped up as this really old school, horny melodrama. At one point, it's even compared to Peyton Place which had come out relatively close to that time. I love your Peyton Place's Picnic. Picnic is also a very good example. These hot, sweaty, will they or won't they, strange guy comes to town and shakes things up type of films. Very popular in the 50s in this era of domesticity and repressed sexuality. You could go to the movies and for the price of a ticket, you could watch a lot of beautiful people. 
literally and figuratively dance around each other. I was really surprised by how much this movie is sold as the Peyton Place of 1958, like a summer place if this was two years later. I don't think that's a disservice to this movie, but it doesn't understand what that implication is because Peyton Place is salacious. Yes, it's got teen pregnancy, but to watch this movie, this is a film where Orson Welles' character pretty much tells Paul Newman, I just want you to marry my daughter to impregnate her. He is very basic about it right up front. It is a movie that is all about these characters actually having sex, which is in 1958 when the code is still in effect, it would be in effect for another couple of years, is shocking. I was like, Peyton Place, don't compare this to Peyton Place. Peyton Place seems tame compared to this movie. The literary source also, we're dealing with, it may not be the Hamlet, which it's based on by William Faulkner, may not be canonical, top shelf Faulkner, but it's still Faulkner. Is it Grace Metolius who wrote Peyton Place? It's more snack food than protein entree. Love a snack. Just in this case, if we're making the comparison, it leaves a lot out to only compare it. But that's a marketing thing. I think if you went and said it's based on a William Faulkner book, you would expect the ticket sales to shrink in front of your eyes. The sexuality of it can't be separate. That also has to be a huge Mm -hmm. selling point when this movie started to be seen by people. Because... We've talked about many a movie that makes an audience quote-unquote thirsty. And yet, this feels like it's on a whole other level. Because the minute that the movie starts, opening scene is a barn on fire. That sets the entire tone for this movie. There will be literal fire and physical fire as the film goes on. And yet, what I really love about the script, which is credited to Faulkner's Listed, as well as Irving Ravitch and Harriet Frank Jr., is that all of the characters relate to sex in different ways. Orson Welles' character is kind of like the big daddy of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and that he's getting older. He has a woman that he's been with for a very long time, but it has clearly not resulted in any children. Kudos for age-appropriate relationship, although... They try very hard to make Angela Lansbury look older, so they make her look a little blousier. And we're going to talk about Orson Welles at some point. What color is he? I don't know. It seems vaguely offensive. But then you have Jody and Eula. They act like they're newlyweds. It's never really clear on how long they've been together. But also they don't have children, and you're wondering what that's about. And then you have Clara, who... I can't fault her. I love Paul Newman, but she tells him at one point she's got Jane Austen to read. And that's all she wants to do is just sit in her PJs, read a book, get cozy. Honestly, I can't fault her for that. But they all come at this with different relationships and responses to sexuality and their own sexuality that feels very complex compared to some of the other movies of the late 1950s that often presented sexuality as either good or bad, but mostly bad. It was usually bad. Maybe the consequences of that results in marriage, which is good, but you didn't really want to be in that situation at all if you could avoid it. That's spot on. It's funny to think of Orson Welles in terms of sexuality at all, because, you know, if paint a picture of Orson Welles in your head, it's not the guy who could have landed Rita Hayworth as a wife. It's the touch of evil Orson Welles, which is the era that we're talking about. And he's this Falstaffian bloated 
figure of a figure of infinite talent and wit, but nonetheless, not someone you look at and think that's hot and smash that. It's very confusing. The makeup effects. I was texting Emily while I was watching it again last night, and I was like, I'm not really clear if it's a bad spray tan or if it's weird makeup effect. I don't know. I don't know what it is. It seems vaguely offensive, though. I'm not really clear on if it's brown face or not, but it's disturbing. And it's hard to say you're talking about almost it's not blackface, but it's tan or ruddy face. Yeah. He's very rouged in certain scenes. It's really weird. It's hard to know. I'm going to pass on that because we're 70 years on and the Technicolor stock doesn't age well. And who knows what it would have looked like on a big screen in 1958. Wells was one of those actors who makeup was a big part of his process. It's a wonderful clip on YouTube of him reciting um, speech of Falstaff while he's putting putty, putty nose and grease paint jowls on his face from the Dean Martin show of all venues. This guy grew up. He was on stage when he was five, Orson Welles. So he grew up in the theater. His makeup process was a big part of his acting process. He had trouble with Martin Ritt. He had trouble with the other actors who were actors' studio, almost all of them. Makeup was probably a reflection of his difficulties with Martin Ritt and the other actors rather than some sort of social commentary or attempt to make some kind of racial message. Did Newman and him get along while they made this? No, they did not. One of the great things that I found as his biographer was in an archive at Columbia University. Somebody, try and imagine this, graduate students at Columbia University in like 1957 or 59 went to every theater on Broadway and interviewed everyone on stage, behind the stage, from ushers to people of Paul Newman and Geraldine Page's level of fame. The transcripts of these are just basically in Q&A format sitting in archive at Columbia University. And I found a 90-page transcript of Paul Newman being interviewed. It's quoted at length, specifically this passage is quoted at length in my book about the difficulty that Wells and Newman had. Wells thought the method was you're doing something that we already know how to do and you're making a big deal out of it. And if you removed the procedures that you're going through, we would get to the same place as just good acting. And he's not wrong, but in 1957, 58, when they were making this movie, that was like telling Chuck Berry, you don't need electricity to play guitar. And it's true, but you're also missing out on something. And then Wells, during the production, there was some iciness between him and all of the other actors who were all very chatty. Martin Ritt had been through the actor's studio as a director and even as a young man as an actor. Wells confessed to Newman at one point about how hard a time he was having. And the conversation that they had broke down Newman's resistance toward him. He said he became warm toward Wells after that after that during the production and after that in life. That said, 20 years later, when Wells needed money to make a movie he was trying to make about politics called The Big Brass Ring, Newman repeatedly turned him down as a producer or actor in the movie. They eventually got along, but not to the point where Newman would make a project with him. It's interesting to hear Orson Welles have criticisms of the process of the method when he's someone who requires the donning of a fake nose for most of his roles, as you mentioned, the makeup is part of the process. And it's not even just costuming or 
fake beards or something like that. The noses, and it's even disorienting while you're watching this because you're just waiting for it to peel off because of how humid they are. Mind-boggling to think that they couldn't understand each other, that they both had to go through steps and preparations. And that would be a source of rub for two extremely well-regarded actors, probably two of the most well-regarded actors in the history of Hollywood. It's amazing to see them on screen together because most people, you know, unless you're a true film buff, would say they never work together because they represent such different styles and such different eras. We think of Wells as of the 40s and 50s, and Newman, really, his fame is 60s and 70s, by which point Wells was appearing to like the wizard in a dragon movie or, or anything to make money commercials, the Dean Martin show. You also touch on something that is the amount of big personas in this movie, which also, just to keep bringing this right back around to sexuality, plays into all of their characterizations. I don't know an audience that would have been able to dissociate Orson Welles playing this character from, yeah, the guy who had married Rita Hayworth and had a child with her. And yet his relationship with Angela Lansbury's character, who just seems like an afterthought in this movie, is very much this aging guy who's aging out of his sexuality. But all of the actors, I think, had that interesting persona and that connection to sexuality. Paul and Joanne were, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Sean, but they were essentially in the throes of their relationship. They were living together at this point. It was a pretty open secret that they were together when they made this. They first met each other making Picnic. Paul had the second male lead as the good boy, and he was technically the understudy for Ralph Meeker in the lead. And Joanne was the understudy for the female lead. So when they would rehearse the second cast, they would play opposite each other. And at that point, Paul is married with three young children. I think his children at that point, his oldest child, Scott, was maybe six. The two girls were four and two. They started their affair. This is around 1956. They continued their affair on and off in New York. And then they were in Hollywood together, stayed at Chateau Marmont. In fact, they shared a house with Gore Vidal, who was a cousin of Joanne Woodward's, and his boyfriend. They told the world that Gore and Joanne Woodward were a couple and were engaged, and Paul and Howard were just friends who were sharing the house with them because it's the 50s. Have you joined Ticklish Business Patreon? You should, just like Allie Moore, Amy Hart, Andrew Hoppy, Danny, David Floyd, Donna Hill, Gates, Jacob Haller, Jonathan Watkins, Krista Painter, Mick F., and Rachel Clark. Listen to episodes 48 hours early, watch exclusive video interviews, receive merch, and even guests on an episode. You also get access to bonus series like Based on a True Podcast, Doubled Features, and our latest series, But Have You Read the Series? It's all at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Back to the show. Then at this point on this shoot, they let their relationship become well-known. They were on location in Louisiana, Mississippi, and you know the Deep South, and it came out. They were together constantly. Joanne is a Southerner. She's still with us. She's a Southerner, and so she had the home field advantage and could take him around and show him Southern ways, and he was madly in love. Even though he was a married man and a Navy veteran with three children, he said that Joanne was his first true sexual awakening as a man. He's in his early 30s at this time. She's a year or two older than him, I believe. 
they were married in 1959, about four to six months after this film premiered. They were married in Las Vegas. Newman was a good boy. And breaking up that marriage, in addition to authorizing the Ethan Hawke documentary, which is astounding, Newman's daughters have put out the memoir he was working on with Stuart Stern, who was the best man at their wedding. In that book, he talks about how broken he was because he was leaving his wife and children. And that was just the opposite of everything he was brought up to think and do and be. He married someone who he was then with for 50 years. And he took his responsibilities as a father and as an ex-husband seriously. He and the children's mother, Jackie, Jackie Witt, the first wife, worked together and maintained a relationship cordially for decades. You can see that relationship and that naturalness between them. It's what I think when most people finally watch The Long Hot Summer, it's what they love about the movie is that it's billed as the movie where you can watch Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward fall in love, even though they already were well into that. Just the natural ease and the chemistry. We don't get chemistry like that. We've had couples act on screen in movies. And nowadays, it's considered a cursed thing, right? You don't want to watch real life couples act together. They don't have the same thing. To watch these two on screen, it's part of what makes this movie so compelling is watching them act opposite each other. Ben Quick's dialogue is 70% sexual innuendos. It's just like, girl, if you decide to hook up with me, it's going to be the highlight of your year. It's just every line is talking about how great he is and it's going to be awesome. And she's just like, no. And that's what I love about it is his confidence and how much she just throws cold water on him throughout the entire movie. Even that sequence that is gift all the time on social media where he's out on the balcony with the pillow and he's taunting her. You can't really see her face. There's not a close up in the room. I always believe that she is just rolling her eyes like, dude, if you got to stand out there and peacock, I'm just not really interested. You are interrupting book time, sir. And that's what I love about their dynamic in this movie is that I don't believe that that is probably how they acted together, but it makes you love the characters more. You genuinely do want them to get together, not because you want him to prove him right. And, and that's, I think, part of it is that Orson's character he wants to marry her off to this man so that she can be like a broodmare. And the audience, I know, is me watching it. I want them to get together because the concept is that Clara is so smart and so intelligent. She's not necessarily built for this small town. She likes the guy that she's seeing on and off, but he's a mama's boy. He's sickly. He's got old movie disease, which is like he sits on a chair all the time with a blanket over him. There's nothing exciting, and you weep for the fact that she's going to become this small-town woman that's probably in a loveless marriage. You at least want her to have some excitement, and that's where the dynamic works between them, is that he pulls her out of her shell, and she tells him, you should probably get a job and some other stuff in your life. I love the fact that the movie doesn't paint her as frigid. She just knows what she wants. And what she wants includes sex. She has a whole monologue about it. She's hanging out with her sister-in-law who runs upstairs to go and get frisky. And she's just like, must be nice. And her friend's like, yeah, it must be nice. It's great. She's very open with the women in her life about what she wants and what she expects. But she's very honest of just saying, 
I am not going to entirely settle down. She's been flirting with this gentleman, Mr. Stewart, for five years since she was 18 years old, conveniently. She's just like, he'll ask me if he wants to. She wants to get married, but she's not going to settle for any guy. She has that really great speech where she talks to him about how a relationship is not just about sexuality. It is about trust and companionship and respect. For 1958, and knowing that Betty Friedan would come out with Feminine Mystique a couple years later and pretty much say that everybody's mom was popping pills and was living in their own domestic nightmare, it's really refreshing to watch her character say, these are the things that I want, and I'm not going to settle for anything less than a man who can respect those things. I know that Joanne Woodward, always a very unsung actress, I don't think we've ever really given her her flowers as a performer. I know that It's not this movie, but I did watch From the Terrace recently as well, which I know is the one movie she says that she felt beautiful in. She gets to play the femme fatale. She's playing the Ben Quick character in that movie. And From the Terrace is not a great movie, but it's a very interesting experiment in watching the two of them switch roles in some ways. But I have to disagree with her that that movie is the only time that she was beautiful because she is so gorgeous in this movie. The way that she comes off with the clothes, the fact that her intelligence is what's sexy, not her physical appearance. Very revolutionary for 1958. Let's not forget, she also has an Oscar at this time. Right? Three Faces of Eve, and Paul couldn't even get nominated. There were many publicity shots at the time of him mopily staring at her Oscar on Oscar announcement morning where he did not get recognized for the left-handed gun or somebody up there likes me or this film. She was considered by many people to this day the superior performer of the two, but she also did want a domestic life and a family, and he was drawing the big paycheck, so they made the decision, as many couples do. We don't think of movie stars as having to make these same choices, but if one of us is going to leave the house, then you, a million dollars a pop, you go out. She was the talent for a long time. The last movie stars I know does a really good job of showing how that changed when she did eventually settle down and they started to have children. She stayed at home and raised the kids and that made her very restless that she wanted to be back on screen and she did want to work. It's why as just couples goals, the Newman Woodward clan is not perfect as your book lays out, but they feel so authentic and that they were candid about the issues that go into being in a marriage where you are both performers and you both want to go do things. He became a director, a director of note, in part to give her parts. Right. Rachel, Rachel, the fact of Gamma Rays on The Man on the Moon Marigolds, The Shadow Box. Some of these were made for television. The Glass Menagerie, the gorgeous production with John Malkovich and Karen Allen. Newman directed Almost exclusively, there were one or two times he directed something because another director fell out and he was the producer. But mainly, he directed to give Joanne Woodward her pedestal. Rachel, Rachel, also just shout out for a great movie. That is another movie that I discovered relatively recently. And oh, my gosh, that is a really great movie. Also has a really good, interesting look at sexuality. I also want to talk about Lee Remick is in this as Yula. I love Lee Remick. Again, another unsung actress that did not get her flowers. It's always jarring to me to watch this, knowing a year later, she did Anatomy of a Murder, where she plays the villainess. 
if you want a nice little history tidbit, I have no idea how true this is, according to IMDb, but Anatomy of a Murder is supposedly considered the first movie reference to the word panties. Yeah, if you've ever wanted to hear Jimmy Stewart say the word panties, you can definitely watch it in that. But I love her in this because she could play really anything. She could play a daffy, sex-crazed young woman. She could also play very nuanced, dark characters. She was always gorgeous. It didn't matter what the role called for. What I was struck by watching the movie again this time is that Clara is all brains. She's all interior thought. And poor Eula is in the grand tradition of Faulkner heroines. She's all exterior. There's that part where the boys are catcalling her from the street and Orson Welles very crassly says they don't need to see her. They can smell her. I was just sitting there thinking justice for Eula. I love that moment where she comes home and she's telling him that he needs to find something else to do. Jody needs to find something else to do with his time. She's like, maybe I'll take some classes. Maybe I'll get a college degree. And I was like, yes, yes, you should do that, girl. I need you to better yourself. But at the same time, I have to get on my Tony Franciosa pedestal here. So he is really good in this movie. He's good in everything that he did. If you ever needed a discount Warren Beatty or like a low-level Robert Stack, you got Anthony Franciosa. Anthony Franciosa, to me, if we're talking about the best couple in old Hollywood, Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, Anthony Franciosa was part of one of the worst couples. And I love that he was part. If you're talking about some of the trashiest, low-rent coupledom in history, you cannot do better than researching Anthony Franciosa's marriage to Shelley Winters. I wrote a book about Chateau Marmont. You did, which is another great book that I love. The Castle on Sunset. One of the scenes in there is Tony Francios is making a movie with Anna Magnani and they're having an affair. Anna is staying at Chateau Marmont because that's where the Europeans stayed when they came to Hollywood. Shelley knows he's there. She goes over. She said she grabbed an Oscar. I think she grabbed a Golden Globe, which was in the living room on her way to the car with which to brain him. She wound up bursting in on the two of them. As one does. Wrestling on the couch. (laughs) Tony ran out of the suite and down the stairs. Shelley was chasing him with her statuette. Anna Magnani was chasing her. And after a few floors, Franciosa's getting away. And Shelley Winters turns around to Anna Magnani and says, why are we doing this? He's not worth it. And the two of them just sat down on the landing and had a chat, went back upstairs and had a drink and called truce. And then she went home and she said, Tony was home for dinner every night on time after that, but (laughs) the marriage didn't last. The marriage did not last. And if anybody wants more reading material, go read Shelley Winter's autobiography. There's two of them, and I'm not really clear which version has which story. She has a chapter. It's a very short chapter about her marriage to Anthony Franciosa. It is just hilarious because it's pretty much, I dated him. Don't really know why I dated him, but we had a lot of sex. And then I married him. I don't really know why I married him. We just, we had a lot of sex. And then I realized, why do I want to stay with him? I don't really know why. And and I was just like, it is 20 some odd pages of the lady doth protest too much. They are my favorite, favorite dime store, Burton Taylor. She says that if sex was an Olympic sport, he would have won all the medals. Yep. (laughs) It's a close paraphrase. Anthony Franciosa, I mean, if we're talking about 
personal life. He was married to Judy Balaban, who was one of Grace Kelly's bridesmaids. He definitely knew how to pick his ladies and yet was allegedly a terrible husband. The acting, though, in this, his performance here, between this and something like Period of Adjustment, which is another really great movie if you haven't seen it, Tony Franciosa's sweet spot as a performer was just playing sad doofs that you were just like, you need to get your stuff together and figure it out. Because in this movie, he just spends all his time just sitting in the corner watching Ben Quick run the store. Does he make any effort to fix that situation? No, he's just that kid that's sitting in the corner and being like, that guy took my toys. And then when he eventually pops up in the third act with a gun, nobody really believes it's going to be anything. And then he eventually tries to kill his dad by locking him into a barn. You're just like, Jody, you need to maybe take a sip of chocolate milk or something and just reassess. That was always the type of character that Anthony Franciosa really excelled at. Just guys that you were like, you clearly don't need to be married. You clearly don't need to have children. You just need to evaluate your life choices and maybe be single forever. I do have to admit that the digging scene, as someone who loves to garden, he's like, this is so hard. This is so awful. He's digging with a flathead shovel. That's not what you dig with. And I was like, I don't know if the prop master just did this or it's by coincidence, but it sums yeah. up just that he's a dummy. He's just so dumb and it's he is, so silly. Dare I say he's the 1958 Ken? Yeah. 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 That's, that's good. He's <laughs> name dropped in a Tom Waits song, Wild Wild West. The character sings, Tony Franciosta used to date my ma. See, even his legacy is who he's dating. I want to talk about the legacy of the collaboration that Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward had with Martin Ritt. Shockingly enough, this movie did not get any real awards traction, which 1958, whatever. They would all come back to do HUD, and then they would also come back to do Paris Blues, which Paris Blues, maybe we'll talk about that at a certain point down the line, because if we want to talk about revolutionary looks at sexuality and race. That movie really has it all in spades. And to talk about the hottest cast, just the hottest cast, might be hotter than this cast. Claudia and Diane Carroll. Yeah. And they're all good. What was the magic between Rit and Newman? What did they like about each other that made them work so well together? Rip is an interesting character. He had been an important director at the Actors Studio and on Broadway, and then he was blacklisted. Long Hot Summer is his first studio production. He was soft blacklisted. He wasn't like one of these guys who had to leave the country or took his own life. He wasn't Dalton Trumbo. Right, right. Or Joseph Losey. People who left the country or left the business. And Rip was able to continue working. They just hit it off. They formed a production company together. At first, it was called Joe Dell. Named after their wives, Mrs. Ritt was a Dell Ritt and Joanne Woodward. So I always think of two old Jews in the garment district starting a company and naming it after their wives or kids. But then it was called something like Salem Dover. I don't know why. But they did HUD together with Patricia Neal, just fantastic. And that's a movie, the sexuality is right up front. The film is based on the first novel by Larry McMurtry. And the character that Patricia Neal plays in that novel is a black woman. They bled the racial content out of it. They made Paris Blues together. Ritt did an anthology film called Hemingway's Adventures as a Young Man, where Newman played a punch-drunk fighter. 
who Nick Adams, Hemingway's protagonist, meets and learns the life story of. And the last picture they did together was Ombre, which was the first adaptation of an Elmore Leonard story for the big screen. Or second, 310 to Yuma was the first. It was a very fruitful collaboration, but I think Rit was interested in a certain type of movie that was only going to be so big. Rit is one of the great conscience-driven American auteurs. He goes on to make Norma Ray and The Front about the blacklist, Stanley and Iris, a movie with Robert De Niro and Jane Fonda about adult illiteracy. Martin Ritz movies always had a message. And at a certain point, Newman was too big a star for that type of box. They always had a good relationship. They wound up being in different businesses. Once Newman truly took off, there was just less they could do together. But they always had a mutual respect based on that shared education as actors, studio veterans. They had a shared language. They would cast movies together. And in their movies, you'd find people like Abner Bieber, little known actors who had great reputations from the New York stage. They had a lot of working methods, shorthand and a shared language that I believe was really fruitful for both of them until their careers just took them in different directions. This movie just feels so anathema to what both of them would end up doing in their careers. You start with this saucy Faulkner, sweaty adaptation, and then you're making message movies in different ways. And it feels like the beginning of something. It's also the end of the period where you were under contract for a studio and you showed up and they gave you a script and said, yeah. this is your next part as a director or an actor. This is 1957-58, the production. 1960, Newman is one of the first people who is liberated from a studio contract. He actually had to pay Jack Warner a million or a million and a half dollars to get his freedom to work as a free agent. That was another reason that he and Martin Ritt worked together in the 60s is because as a tandem, they knew that, okay, between us, we can do stuff. You're a good director. I'm a good actor. We see things similarly. People will finance the two of us. And then once they each realized, hey, we've got this, they didn't need that security of a team. Overall, The Long Hot Summer, I love it. It's definitely a movie that will get you hot and bothered. Everybody's beautiful, except for Orson. But he's there. He's very good. He gives gravitas. If it inspires more people to check out the Newman-Rit collaborations, you are in for a really good time. Emily, final thoughts on Long Hot Summer? I can't not enjoy this movie. It's beautiful people acting beautifully. They all bring it. Orson Welles is doing his Wellesiest. They're all so evenly matched. And I love any movie where Angela Lansbury plays a not posh woman. She did Cockney Everyday Woman just so well. How artfully the character traps him in a marriage. It's just so fantastic. Everybody in here, they know exactly what the steps are for their character and where they're supposed to end up. So they hit every single mark. And it's a very well-written movie too. There are a lot of Faulkner adaptations that get it all wrong. And then there are a lot of Faulkner adaptations that act like the South is a theme park. And that doesn't really happen here. It's very respectful to Faulkner, who's one of my favorite authors. I just really appreciate how it translated to screen. It was great. And Sean, final thoughts. Take us out on what your overall opinion of the Long Hot Summer is. It's not considered top shelf Newman or Ritt or Woodward or Wells. 
But in none of the cases of the major collaborators in this movie would it be on the worst list. It's a bunch of people hitting the ball real solid. All their shots are straight in this, to use a sporting metaphor. It goes to show you that when you get that many good people and you just let them work, you're going to get a good film or at least a very interesting film. This is a good film. Is it top 10 Newman? No, but that's because it's Paul frickin' Newman and his top 10 is 30 movies. Even the worst one is still really good. Well, you know, <laughs> he was in the last Irwin Allen disaster movie of the 70s. Someday I'm going to die. And if that flashes in front of my eyes, there's going to be a conversation. <laughs> Remind us to have you back when we talk about Irwin Allen disaster films. No, if no, we ever thank get you. There. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. And to see Newman and Joanne Woodward at, at this bloom of their relationship when they're still young actors who are daring and fully inhabiting their parts. It's a real treat. Let us know your thoughts on The Long Hot Summer, Paul Newman, Joanne Woodward, Shelley Winter's autobiography. You can email them to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com or send them to us via all social media platforms and we will read them on an upcoming episode. I'd like to thank Sean Levy once again, author of Paul Newman, A Life, for joining us. Sean, where can fans find and get in touch with you? Feel free to plug anything they should know about. SeanLevy.com. My name is spelled, unfortunately, the same way as the creator of Stranger Things and the Night at the Museum movies. <laughs> I get email for that dude every day of my life. Most recently, I released a podcast, four episodes, a kind of history of Lou Wasserman, the most powerful man in Hollywood, both as a agent and as a studio boss and as a political figure in the 60s and 70s. It's called Glitter and Might. The Lou Wasserman Story, available wherever you get your podcasts. And my most recent book is called In on the Joke, The Original Queens of Stand-Up Comedy. It's about a dozen women who, Joan Rivers is the end of the book. Most histories of comedy start with Joan Rivers. So this is Moms Mabley and Minnie Pearl and the Boggs, Belle Barth and Pearl Williams, Elaine May. Just really brilliant, funny women who have not yet had their due. And as somebody who has read more than one of Sean's books, I can tell you they are all good. Definitely worth spending a weekend and reading some good literature. That's going to close out Ticklish Business for today. Once again, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews matter, and we'd love to kick off 2024 with one. So leave us one on Apple Podcasts. Five stars should do. You can follow us on all social media platforms at ticklish underscore biz on It Will Always Be Twitter as well as on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at TicklishBiz. You can follow me on all social media at KristenLopez88, as well as read my work on The Wrap. Emily Edwards, where are you online? I'm pretty much everywhere, back on Twitter, as much as I hate it, at Ms. Emily Edwards or at MsEmilyEdwards.com. If you do want to check out Fuckboys of Literature, there's a tab on MsEmilyEdwards.com where you can find that too, if you feel so inclined. We actually have an episode on William Faulkner from a couple seasons ago. Our Patreon helps keep the lights on at Ticklish Biz HQ and gives us chances to do all sorts of new content like our latest episode of Being Elvis on Priscilla, as well as doing all of the great videos. If you've been over on our Instagram, shout out to our new videographer, Jenny Hawkins. Your Patreon support helps us keep getting to hire her to do really great videos for us. And of course, both me and Emily are authors. Emily actually is working on a book as we speak, as am I. So consider supporting us by buying our first books. 
You can order them wherever you get books. We will return with a new episode on February 28th talking about Monty Clift in The Heiress. Till then! <laughs>